when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Galileans, why do you stand staring up towards heaven? Okay, so why this gentle rebuke from the angelic middle management to the disciples? Well, the Feast of Ascension is partly about closure, and closure, as we know, is an important and vital thing in our lives if we're to live in the present tense. The Ascension, we could say, closes off the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. It brings to end the most remarkable chapter in human history, a chapter in which the almighty and transcendent God came to us as one of us, really, really one of us. Not in um, corpuscles of some years standing, although I use this expression from time to time, not as God in a human zipper suit, but really one of us sharing and indeed embracing our fragile, fractured, and fettered condition for the sake of our nonetheless inestimable and worthwhile, not only loved, but lovable selves. A God ever faithful to the covenant, even if we aren't faithful to the covenant. The God who, again, walked in the garden in the cool of the day, not in paradise, but in the complexities of our world as it is. And in the story of Jesus, the garden became not the testing place for us because we already flunked that test, if you may remember um, in Genesis uh, sort of Ethics 101. We bombed that. Um, not a good reminder just at this time in the academic year, but anyway, um, uh, it, it all turned out all right in the end. But the garden becomes Christ's testing place. In fact, so authentic, so complete, so committed do we find God in the person of Jesus Christ that Christ, you could say, goes all the way, goes right to the edge and crosses the bottom line, even our mortality, even to death and death on a cross uh, is embraced by Christ and to a tomb, but that tomb could not constrain that commitment. Now, is the death of Christ an atonement for sin? Well, yes, of course it is. But that doesn't begin to do justice to what the work of Christ means, his life, death, and resurrection. It accomplishes an everlasting realignment in the order of things, a radical new bottom line. Nothing, that is, in all creation can now defeat love. So that's quite a lot to happen in history. And closure is necessary if we are to live in the present tense, as I said. But there is a shadow side to the ascension, I think. There is more than a little element amongst us Christians, I think, of relief. You know, phew, that's over. The incarnation's over. Let's get God right back up there where he belongs. That's where divinity is. It's way up there. It's beyond the organ loft. It's just way, way up there. This incarnated God has drawbacks. The incarnation, you see, is just a little near the bone. It's indeed in the bone. 
Ascension Tide, perhaps than, more than any other time of the Christian year, is full of imagery of kingship, thrones, the language of lordship, power, a discourse of distance, a rhetoric of remoteness. The earthy vernacular of the incarnation is replaced by the beautiful but remote language of monarchy. As the famous Ascension hymn goes, he was humbled for a season to receive a name. Tis the Father's pleasure we should call him Lord. But Easter and Ascension do not disrupt all that has gone before. The risen and ascended Christ is not in discontinuity with Jesus of Nazareth. So how do we see Jesus exercising lordship? We see someone who challenges, who has authority, absolutely, but we see someone who strengthens the weak, who says to his followers that the leader must be the servant of all, uh, who expresses his authority most supremely when he washes his own disciples' feet. Now, we must ask ourselves, does the ascended Christ abandon that concept of lordship? Was he humbled for a season only to receive a name? Could we say that the incarnation was just a phase God was going through before getting back to the more conventional, vertical, patriarchal, worldly, less subversive kind of lordship? To caricature a bit, On one hand, we have the glorified and risen and ascended Christ in contrast to the earthly Jesus of Nazareth. In this reading, Jesus is understood as a sort of bleeding-heart liberal, a vegetarian Birkenstock-wearing do-gooder. But now we have the risen and ascended Christ, and he assumes a more traditional macho role, a king, a lord, a lord who puts the boot in. I want to suggest that we don't see ascension as a distancing thing or something that disrupts what we have learned about God through the person of Jesus Christ. The ascension is not a big promotion for Jesus, an enhanced package, a big kick upstairs to the boardroom. So what is it then? I think the crucified and risen Christ, rather than seeing him as leaving us, takes our humanity into the heart of God. Everything that made Jesus fully human, and therefore everything that makes you and me fully and authentically human, ascends with the risen Christ to be with God the Father. The risen and ascended Christ does not discard what it is to be human like an old coat, something undesirable, wretched, distasteful, last year's fashion statement. God's divinity not only comes down to earth in the person of Jesus, but our humanity is taken right up into God. So God, you could say, not only comes down in the incarnation, but also we are raised up in the ascension. God does not reject humanity, but receives it into his own being. And perhaps the profoundest expression of this idea is, of course, in the letter to the Hebrews, a little hint of it, earlier in the service when the author of Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Ours is not a high priest, therefore, unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Therefore, Christ's style of lordship is also taken 
into the heart of God. By the ascension, maybe early Christians were trying to say that we must be Christ's body now. Speaking, we speak in the creed of Christ being at the right hand of the Father. And when they said that, they did not mean to distance Christ from us, but the exact opposite. Uh, as some of you know, I'm a 16th and 17th century historian as well as uh, chaplain. And uh, in an early failed attempt at 16th century ecumenism, Martin Luther and the more radical of the mainstream reformers, Ulrich Zwingli of Zurich, met in Marburg in the early 1520s to resolve their differences over the Eucharist. And this text about being at the right hand of the Father became a bone of contention, if you'll pardon the pun. Zwingli argued that Christ could in no way be present in the bread and wine as his body was at the right hand of the Father, therefore not on earth. Luther replied along the lines of, and where is the right hand of the Father, but everywhere. It was a failed ecumenical moment. They actually loathed each other. Their letters are incredibly um, uh, vitriolic about each other. Um, but I've also, I have to say, I've always had a soft spot for Luther's canny repost to the more erudite Swiss reformer. The body of the risen Christ is at the right hand of the Father. That is, it is at all, it is at all times and in all places. And here we come back to the incarnation. By Christ being at the right hand of the Father, we are empowered to do God's work. God's, of work, God's work, works of healing, teaching, of justice and challenge. These are works of Eucharist. And that God uses the people, we are our very humanity, to do that work. We are quite simply good enough for God. Good enough for a God who takes into the divine self the fullness of our humanity in Jesus. Remember, it's real humanity that... Uh, God that is taken into God, not some made-up, fake, bogus humanity. Real people who have hopes and fears, sins and graces, sex and a sexuality, bodies and souls. So incarnation was not a phase God went through like an awkward adolescent. It is the identity and work of the church, and it begins in the baptism of Christians and is renewed and empowered in every Christian Eucharist. So tonight we receive Christ's body to be Christ's body at all times and in all places.